Something fishy going on at the Cleveland Planning Commission. We don't have the full details, so we won't be able to go into a lot of detail today. We'll talk about it next week. But it seems like they made a major effort to be secretive about their discussion of the Cleveland Browns Lakefront plan. Makes no sense because the whole point of Steve Litt's piece last Sunday was it's time for a big public discussion. And they didn't advertise it the way they normally do. They didn't notify reporters and they refused to stream it. Very fishy. We're looking for more details. Look back to us next week. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon, Laura Johnston, and today, Cuyahoga County reporter, Courtney Astolfi, who will be talking about Armin Budish's State of the County speech. Happy Friday. Man, for me, this is the longest week I've ever lived through. <laughs> you can actually enjoy this weekend instead of being horizontal? I don't know, man. I'm still fighting it. My chest is really tight. This is the worst virus. I hope nobody else gets it. It's not gone. Let's begin. How is it remotely possible that Michigan will hit herd immunity from the coronavirus two months earlier than Ohio, September versus November? Wasn't Michigan in complete freefall with new cases a few weeks ago? We were feeling all superior, Laura Johnston. How did this happen? You know how much Ohio likes to feel superior to Michigan. And we have been tracking Michigan's cases since the very beginning, since they were off kind of way higher than Ohio's to start with. We leveled out and then they, they got bad again. But the issue here is vaccinations, not cases. And the prediction that Michigan will get to hear herd immunity before us is completely based on their recent vaccination rate. And there's a study that a group called APM is doing, looks at the whole country and does state-by-state analysis. Ohio is one of the later states that they believe will get to herd immunity. And it's it's basically just based on, on how fast it's going. Now, we got to look at Vaximillion. That has upped the rates in Ohio. So maybe if we look at this and again in another two weeks, our herd immunity numbers will be quicker. And I think we'd all like to see that. But I mean, this is no guarantee. We have no you know, knowledge that we're ever going to get to herd immunity in Ohio. And, and we, Julie Washington did this story. She talked to some experts that say, yeah, that's still a goal, but it really requires talking to a vulnerable population and making sure that they get vaccinated. The fascinating part of this is it comes down to Trump states versus Biden yeah. states. And Michigan, by a hair's breadth, went for Biden. Ohio went heavily for Trump and Trump voters don't trust the vaccine, even though Trump got the whole train moving to get us the vaccine and has had the vaccine. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. There's a couple of maps in Julie's story that show, you know, the red state versus blue state. And then I think they use green to to show who's gotten vaccinated so far. And there is a definite correlation. But yeah, I mean, we've said this since the very beginning. It was, you know, vaccines is kind of the new masking. Um Trump was anti-mask. And and it, that's it's really crazy how such a health emergency is breaking down on political lines. Well, but remember, Donald Trump spent most of the coronavirus epidemic trying to downplay it. I mean, he ignored it. He lied to America about the severity of it. The only thing he did right was invest in the vaccines, which has helped us all get it in America compared to some other countries. But his followers, if they were really diehard Trump followers, were listening to him all of last year. I mean, how long did it take for them to stop saying it was a hoax? How many people had to die before they they acknowledged that COVID-19 is real? For months, it was, this is fake, this is fake, it'll all be gone the day after election day. 
So if you really think that kind of thing, it's not surprising that you would ignore the science and not get vaccinated, which is why Michigan will have it over Ohio yet again. You're listening. <laughs> hey, we're not as bad as some states. West Virginia is like another nine months in the future. So, you know, we're not the worst. Okay, we're better than West Virginia. High <laughs> praise. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why does Cuyahoga County Executive Armand Budish believe the county is in a good position to prosper as the pandemic comes to a close? Courtney Astolfi, we pillory Armand Budish on this podcast for all of his many acts of incompetence, which we get from reading your stories. Uh, this is his one day where he can stand up before, I don't know how big the crowd is because it was virtual, kind of creepy, and say, I'm great. Here's why. What did he say? Yeah. So yesterday was Executive Budish's sixth State of the County address, and he really took that time to give a rundown of all the different COVID-19 response programs that the county has been doing over the past year. That's comprised a lot of his effort and focus. So yesterday was a pretty good overview of all those programs. But, you know, he made the point that those kinds of things paired with how Cuyahoga County was doing before the pandemic lays a solid groundwork for us moving out of the pandemic. Well, he did do a lot of good with the stimulus money the county got. He put what tens of millions into rent assistance programs to keep people with a roof over their head. He provided money to employers that were hammered by the pandemic so they wouldn't go out of business. I mean, it seemed like every week or two you would have another update on him using that money in a very beneficial way. Now, it's not his money. It's the federal money. But he could have squandered it, and he didn't. And he seemed to to point to that, right, as part of his taking credit for where we stand? Yeah, for sure. I mean, he's he's really been big on the rental assistance, like you mentioned, trying to prevent, as he's described it, a tsunami of evictions here in our area. Um, but he's also done some interesting stuff over the past year. The county used some of that federal aid to house homeless folks in hotels to help tamp down on the spread in the shelters. Uh, you know, grants to small businesses. There was some arts funding, restaurant funding. So kind of wide ranging how they use those dollars. Yeah, I, I was I was pretty impressed throughout. I mean, I, I wasn't impressed because he kept sitting next to officials of the Cuyahoga County Health Board pretending they were doing a good job. But as he spent the money, and I thought he did a nice job with it. What, uh, what new economic development projects did he talk about? He had three or four that he threw on the table that he said will move the county into the future. Yeah, so there was some new stuff and there was some, you know, going back to old ideas he's thrown out that are, you know, making their way through the county process and things. So um, one thing that struck out is kind of a new line of thinking to me was he said we should be using Lake Erie as, as a marketing tool, as a way to attract manufacturing businesses, food and beverage businesses, perhaps some IT companies who need a reliable, fresh source of um, water to make their businesses go. And he said, you know, that's really an asset. We should be marketing that and trying to bring those folks into our county. You know, what was weird about that is there's a not widely known organization in Northeast Ohio called the Cleveland Water Alliance. That's all they do. They represent it's thousands, I think, of different businesses that trade off of clean water. And it's not recreational. It's the industrial side. And, you know, we've had them in to talk to us a few times to our editorial board. They do all sorts of things. It's Pete Krause has written a, a series of stories about their work. So for Armand Budish to stand up yesterday and talk about this like this was a, 
brand new idea without mentioning the Cleveland Water Alliance, I felt like he was bigfooting something somebody else is doing in a big way. I mean, if he would have said, look, I, I, I think the future is the lake. The Cleveland Water Alliance has invested a lot of time in trying to get employers to come here. It's a very competitive thing. Here's why I, I want to join them. But he put it out there like it was his own idea, and it's really not. What else? So, you know, two other things we've heard about before, but he provided, you know, some more details on is, is his microgrid idea um, as a way to attract business that's, that's establishing a redundant power source for businesses who worry about when there's a power outage, they lose productivity. You know, his argument is that they'll pay a decent amount of money to make sure that they have a backup supply. And, and, you, and you said something is something has significantly changed with this. Originally, he planned to do it in the downtown Carter using the Cleveland Public Power System, which is a redundant system to First Energy System. We have two sets of power lines. But I guess working with Cleveland broke down and now he wants to go elsewhere and start from scratch, installing a whole new set of electrical lines. Well, so the county says the downtown Cleveland idea isn't dead. They're still working on it. But in the meantime, they're pivoting to some of these outlying areas. Um, some ideas they've thrown out as a pitch is the the Brexville area where the new Sherwin-Williams research and development site's going to be. They've thrown out um, the so-called Aero Zone, which is down by Hopkins. So it would be kind of hit and miss where they, where they seek to add this infrastructure. And the county. But but hold on. So this is an economic development tool. He said, this will draw businesses here. Why not East Cleveland? I mean, he was ready to put the jail in East Cleveland claiming that would be an economic development tool, which is patently ridiculous. So if you really want to help East Cleveland, why not do it there? And they would welcome it. It's near University Circle. Why, why is that even on the table? I mean, Brexville doesn't really need the boost. East Cleveland does. I guess I'm raising the question, is his statement about economic development in East Cleveland bona fide when he was talking about putting a jail there? Or was it just a way to dump the jail outside of downtown? Well, you know, we've kind of talked about that before. I think I think some of the idea with a microgrid is kind of see where there's clusters of businesses already and maybe have like many concentrations of businesses where you target this infrastructure. So maybe that's why East Cleveland isn't on the table. I can't yeah, really say. If you, if you want to turn around the most poverty stricken city in the, in the state, why not go there? It, it, it's a, it's a interesting one. He also talked about the, um, a neighborhood investment, a central neighborhood in Cleveland investment. What's that about? Yeah, this I thought was interesting. It's called Neighborhood Surge. He wants to do a pilot program, you know, that could theoretically be expanded if this initial batch, this initial project is successful. So to begin this Neighborhood Surge program, he wants to focus on Cleveland's central neighborhood. And the idea is to kind of flood that neighborhood with a bunch of county resources with the goal of giving one place a really big boost and, and lift up to, to tackle, you know, the poverty issues and things like that. So the, so the different community resources or the different county resources, he'd want to sink into such a community, you know, focus county road paving programs there, really amp up tree planting there, you know, focus job training and recruitment efforts there, boost internet connectivity, bring financial literacy programs and really try and lift a single neighborhood up. 
That'd be an interesting experiment. We'll, we'll, we've invested a lot of our own time reporting on poverty there. I'll be interested to see how this works and if it's for real. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. It was a strange moment during Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish's State of the County Address Thursday when he changed his friendly, cheerful demeanor and bristled at a question about the county's debt capacity. Courtney Astolfi, what was the question and what was the answer and why did he bristle at that? Yeah, so the the question was posed by Lee Weingart. He's running for county executive as a Republican candidate uh, in 2022. Okay, so that would explain the bristling. Armin <laughs> Budish has a very thin skin. So the question from Weingart was, based on the premise, with the county's debt capacity tapped out, he had said, how is the county going to pay for a new $500 million jail? It's probably going to be the most expensive capital project in county history. And Armand came back and said, okay, number one, we're not going to raise taxes to pay for it. And he, and he called the premise of Weingart's question completely wrong. He said the county's debt capacity isn't tapped out and that there's over a billion dollars of additional debt the county could accrue. All right, you're going to you're going to work on a story about this, but the reason people believe the county debt capacity is tapped out is because he Budish told people that. It's been 3 or 4 years, but you know, it's not like some false impression. He told people we have no more borrowing capacity. I'll be interested to see exactly what their capacity is and how it's changed. Lee Weingart had some things to say about the speech. He was tweeting throughout it, uh, taking shots at it. And, you know, we don't we don't go to Lee Weingart every time Armin Budish so, does something. He's got to run his own campaign and get his messaging out there. But on a day when Armin Budish stands in front of a lectern and talks about how great he is, his opponent in the election does get a chance to say, I don't agree. What did he say? Yeah, on these various initiatives, microgrid, some of the other things, he just, he called Armin's view of, of these programs fanciful. Um, he, he also makes the argument that the county is tapped out as far as its ability to, to get new debt. And he, he was basically saying that the county's books make it look like the county's in a strong financial place. But he really zeroed on, in on the fact that there's projected operating reserves and how that, that means that the county's not in good shape financially for the long term. Now, now, I do want to know when I throw that out there, the county's reserves are, are kind of flush after last year's federal coronavirus injection of federal aid. They more than doubled their reserves. There's like 180 some million in reserves. So he does make an OK point, but you also have to counter it with some of the short term cash is just sitting there in the bank account. They're also getting whatever it is, 230, 240 million from the latest federal stimulus. So right. there is cash on hand. It's just what is the debt capacity? Could uh, I ask a question? Jane Cahoon. Yeah, you referred to Weingart as his opponent. I mean, is it a given at this point that Butish is going to run for reelection? He certainly is giving the appearance of that. I don't think he would, I don't think he could survive a primary. There are a lot of people that are already out there spreading the word. There's a lot of dissatisfaction with how he's run this county. But Courtney, hasn't he, doesn't he seem like a guy who's bent on running again? You know, some of the announcements and the ways he's phrasing things, yeah, it seems like he's making a bid, but he won't say. And, and I don't know if the decision's necessarily made on his end at this point. 
Now, he still has an open criminal investigation of his administration, one that is questionable beyond words. Dave Yost is been shameful in continuing it, but it's still out there and an opponent will use it. And really, Courtney, every story you've written for the past, I don't know how many years, would be the campaign against him, including blood on his hands for his treatment of the jail. So, Jane Cahoon, I, 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 I don't think he can win if he runs again. I know he has advisors that are telling him he shouldn't run again. But I, I you know, he, the, the, I've heard the line, he's the only person in the county government who doesn't realize he's a lame duck. <laughs> we'll leave it there. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why does the state have to pay Horizon Academy a bunch of money per the order of the Ohio Supreme Court? Jen Coon, we don't have a total on this, uh, but when you look at the individual amounts, it could grow pretty big. Well, yeah, actually, the the lawyer uh, got back to Laura Hancock uh, yesterday and said he thinks it's over seven million bucks. But the the story here is that the Horizon Science Academy, a charter school that has a bunch of different schools around the state, applied for this designation that was created in 2019 uh, called Community Schools of Quality. And they got rejected because the Department of Education said that the operator of the charter schools had to be registered as an out-of-state corporation with the Ohio Secretary of State's office to be considered in good standing. But this in good standing was really not defined in in this law that was created, which was um, put into one of the state's two-year budget, but uh, and, and that created these extra funds. But the Supreme Court um, ruled pretty strongly, five to two, that really qualifying for these funds is really only about the operator's standing as a qualified and effective operator of schools, not, not, not you know, that they're registered with the Secretary of State. They, they have a contract with, the, with an organization called Concept Schools, NFP, in Illinois, a nonprofit, and they're not registered with the Ohio Secretary of State. But as I said, the court said, that doesn't matter because the the law didn't require the operator to be a registered business. So that was the crux of this. Um, and the court directed the the education department to provide these grants of up to $1,750 for each economically disadvantaged student and a thousand bucks for all other students. They have schools in Cleveland, Lorraine, Youngstown, Columbus, Dayton, Toledo, Cincinnati, and Springfield. To, yeah. And as I said, the lawyer said, this will be more than 7 million bucks. Yeah, this is one of those cases that the technicalities of it make your head spin, but the amount <laughs> is, is that. I guess I read the story before she had the $7 million. Yeah, but, that was yeah, added later. $7 million is a lot of money to have denied a, a school. It's a it's an interesting case. It's one of those, the battle over, over funding of private schools in Ohio is always an interesting one. Uh, this is one where the education department felt pretty strongly, but the Supreme Court felt equally strongly and <laughs> Supreme Court rules. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. It's not often that we've done interviews with homicide victims in the year before they are killed, but reporter Kaylee Remington did just that. Art Johnston, what was especially poignant about this story? This is, is such a great story that Kaylee did. We write so many stories about homicides in Northeast Ohio. They all kind of blend together and you just see names and you don't know the story behind the name. So Kaylee's story really makes this senseless death so tangible and meaningful. She met Zachary Kuttner at the Black Lives Matter protest on May 30th of last year. She spoke to him about for about 45 minutes that day, she said, 
and he's he was speaking at the free stamp there's this incredible john coons photo of him rallying the crowd in front of the free stamp and and we have it on cleveland.com and it's just he's so vibrant and vital and and now to know that he's dead it's just it's very touching Kuttner was shot and killed May 8th in Maple Heights, along with his friend Ryan Tyler, who lived in the same apartment building. Kuttner was just a month shy of his 14th, or sorry, his 30th birthday. And Maple Heights police and U.S. Marshals have arrested a 14-year-old boy in the deaths. Kuttner's mom said she thinks the death was a robbery. I guess he was watching the live stream of his brother's commencement ceremony before he left, and he never showed up to his brother's dinner party. His girlfriend didn't know where he was, but... And so, and so there's some mystery there to his death, but his mother said he was passionate about working with Black Lives Matter to address historical injustice and structural racism. He, and he apparently was just this great guy all around, never tried a sport he didn't love and, and was very passionate. Well, you pointed it out yesterday. We do so many stories about homicides in Cleveland. There's just, you know, in the past year, we hit some modern records that you never know the backstory because it's not always the easiest thing to get. But this was one of those examples where you really get into the details. Good piece by Kaylee. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine change his chief of staff with 19 months left in his first term in office? Jane Cahoon, this is kind of a strange move at this juncture, isn't it? Well, it could be. The fact is we really don't know why, because he didn't say why in the in the release he issued on this. But, you know, we always have fun speculating, don't we? We sure do. <laughs> so we really don't know whether this is a change of direction, you know, whether his chief of staff, Laurel Dawson, you know, maybe asked for a change or, or whether it's something else. But, you know, she's becoming a senior advisor with the title of counselor to the governor. And Michael Hall, who was DeWine's policy director, is going to take over for Dawson as chief of staff. He previously worked for DeWine when he was in the U.S. Senate and the attorney general's office. So he's he's got a pretty long history. But Laurel Dawson has a really long history with DeWine, like for decades. In fact, you know, he noted that she's been a trusted advisor since he first ran for the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, so I'll just note two things, which may or may not factor into this. Dwine's up for re-election. And that's a fact that seems to play into, you know, some of his decisions, a lot of the things he's he's doing now, including traveling around the state almost constantly making these public appearances. And um, the other factor is that Dawson does have some association, even if it's not direct with, with First Energy. She's a former partner at the CJR Group, which was a lobbying firm that worked for First Energy, though she never lobbied for the company herself. And she hasn't been accused of anything or, or anything like that. But, you know, DeWine could be trying to insulate himself from a certain line of attack. We already have operatives for Democrat Nan Whaley, you know, trying to tie DeWine to the House Bill 6 first energy scandal. So it, it's it's hard to say, you know, um, and it's hard to say whether Dawson's still going to remain in this inner circle. I mean, I was thinking back to when Amy Acton, Dr. Amy Acton uh, stepped down as health director. She was like named to some sort of senior advisory position. And then next thing you know, she was totally gone. So, you know, it's was, just hard to say. I don't know. I was wondering whether because his reelection campaign is going to be, could be challenging, with an attack from the right and an attack from the left, whether he might be moving her into a position as a transition to 
help run the campaign. I mean, he's that could be if he needs a powerhouse person to run a powerhouse campaign and he trusts her, you don't want to move her directly from chief of staff to your campaign director, but you could easily move her from this new phony position. <laughs> that that's true. That's a good point. All right, we'll have to see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How anxious are people about returning to social interactions following their 14 months of pandemic isolation? Laura Johnson, I'm not having any social interactions <laughs> myself because I don't want to get people sick. But you've put a lot of thought into this. It's given you some uh, moments of contemplation that you turned into a thoughtful story. What did you find? Yeah, and I talked to some really smart experts too, epidemiologists, psychologists, uh, somebody who studies, studies social interactions. And I think we're going to have a very rocky transition as everything opens up, you know, beginning now into the summer. And how anxious you are depends a lot on your personality, like how much of a rule follower you are, um, how comfortable you are with uncertainty, and then obviously your past. Like, do you know people who have been affected by COVID, who died of COVID? Those people are going to be a lot less in a hurry to get rid of, of the protections that we've gotten used to. But think about everything that's become so normal to you. Like you go to a grocery store and you look on the floor for which way you're supposed to walk down the aisle and where you're allowed to stand in line. And, and if you go to the gym, like I, I did go to the gym the whole, you know, whenever I could in the pandemic and the, the machine next to you was closed off. So you didn't have someone just inches for you. Like the idea of going to a play and sharing an armrest with someone does just like share, like send a shiver up your back. I just, I think a lot of these things are, there's so many different points of reentry that we're going to be uncomfortable at the beginning. And we just need to to take time with ourselves and with others and kind of wade into this pool slowly. I don't, I don't think we're just going to be like, you know, V, I don't know if there's VE day or VJ day, you know, the picture of the sailor kissing the nurse on the street um, in New York city. People are not going to be doing that when COVID ends. Although our one precedent, we've talked about this before, is the 1918 pandemic. And right. while it's hard to, going back in history, to pinpoint when we came flying out of our isolation, clearly by the 20s, <laughs> it was the Roaring Twenties. That was the name of it. People were out doing lots of stuff. So right. and they didn't even have the benefit of saying, I'm vaccinated, right? I mean, no, there wasn't a vaccine. There wasn't right. a vaccine. You didn't know you were immune. So I think people just got really tired of it. And there's there's so many more interesting to th things to see about this. Uh, people I talked to for the story said, you know, people gave up makeup. They got used to not wearing makeup on their faces or dressing in comfortable clothes all the time, obviously not going to work. So how are we going to feel about taking all that back on? I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, but we're going to remake this normal. Not everything is going to go back, you know, like a snap of the finger. Um, so it'll, it'll be really interesting to think. I, I'd love to hear how Courtney and Jane feel about the idea of like being shoulder to shoulder with people. I want to wear comfortable clothes forever. Let's just <laughs> put that on the record. But um, I have to say, I've hugged a couple of relatives and friends who I haven't hugged in a long time. And it just, it felt so good. Mm hmm Wow, that's daring. I know, did, I'm surprised. They're all vaccinated. Okay. Jane, funny yes. because I had a friend I saw on Sunday and she was kind of upset and I didn't even think about it. I just gave her, it was a side hug. It wasn't a full on front hug, but I gave her a mm -hmm. hug and I was like, whoa, that's the first time I've hugged you in a year and a half. <laughs> and you're like, after the thought, after the fact, it was like, oh, wow, that was like a step. 
I have Court- to admit, I gave Rich Exner a side hug when I saw him in the office the other day. Courtney, I talked to you a few times during the pandemic, during which you said you really missed the social interaction, talking to your colleagues in the office. Do you, do you expect you'll have misgivings about getting together? Or are you ready to dive right back into the pool of viruses that will surround us everywhere we go? <laughs> You know, I, I'm I'm ready. I, I think I'm a little rusty on my social skills after this year, but I'm fully vaccinated. I stayed at home all year. I followed the rules. I feel like I'm free now. You know, I'm hugging family again. But I will say it's a little weird being away from it. I feel like there's a, a political divide, even among the family who I've held close and been comfortable with my whole life. I don't know how to really talk about or address this last year where there's really been a, d- a big divide open up in our society where you got half of us in one corner and the other half approaching life differently. I think that's going to be a little hard to get past. What about shaking hands? Should we go back to shaking hands or should we just get rid of that custom no, for the rest of humanity? Of that. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I don't want to shake a hand again for the rest of my life, but people are doing it. It's like an old habit and they go straight well, to it's it. It's so symbolic of, of, you know, meeting someone and like having a good foot forward and, and, and being open to that. But yeah, it's also a symbol of, of germiness. And the thing is, it's not the most dangerous thing you could do. Eating with someone or like coughing on them is way more dangerous for COVID than a handshake. Yeah, but it's not just COVID now. You're, right. you're now you're right. thinking about everything you get from somebody else. We need some kind of signal. Like if you stick out your hand and I stick out my elbow, it, let's bump elbows or something. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. Good talk. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That does it for another week of news. Thank you, Courtney, for joining us to talk about Armin Budish's State of the County Address. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. Have a good weekend. Come back for another discussion on Monday. Mm-hmm.